All right, good morning. Um, so it's Memorial Day weekend, and for a lot of folks, and, and you might notice even here, you know, we have folks that are part of this community that are traveling. Uh, they go to see family on Memorial Day weekend, and that's awesome, and, and there's lots of stuff that's happening. But for some, it can be just the beginning of summer, right? Just, okay, this is the official start of summer. It's Memorial Day weekend. I get to start wearing white, and I get to start swimming, in public swimming pools, right? Um, or maybe for some, it's that much-needed three-day weekend. Like if there's been this crunch, and now the weather's finally warm enough to actually go do something with that extra uh, weekend day that you might have. But, and John kind of mentioned this earlier, but Memorial Day, there's a lot there. There's a lot that uh, a meaning that I think we just blow by or maybe we don't remember. And so I just want to talk about that for just a second. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day, and it it is a day of remembrance for those who have died in service of the United States of America. Now, it's difficult to prove conclusively who started this thing. There's a lot of debate between all these different states and cities. Well, we started Memorial Day. No, we started Memorial Day. That happens. But what we do know is that eventually by... Uh, presidential declaration, I believe it was Lyndon Johnson, decided that we were officially going to have this day as Memorial Day. And so, uh, and the other thing that we know is that Memorial Day was born out of the Civil War. This idea, I mean, and if you think about it, it's really interesting that it came out of the Civil War because you had uh, men who were fighting each other in the same country for what they believed in. And so, it, in some ways, it was a way to bring the country together to honor our dead sort of together. And so, Growing up, this holiday, at least in my family, wasn't like a big um, deal in the sense that we weren't real big growing up on visiting grave sites and stuff like that. It just wasn't something that we did. And I remember when I was a kid, I asked my dad about that specifically. He's like, well, you know, I have other friends that go visit their grandpa's graves and those kinds of things. Why don't we do that? And my dad said, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, what good does it do us to go visit them? They're not there anymore. Which I thought was, I mean, it made sense to me as a kid. Now, and I want to be clear, he meant no disrespect, and and he was a veteran. I mean, he fought in the Korean War. He actually lost friends in the Korean War. Uh, So he knew firsthand what the cost was. He knew firsthand what that day was about. Um, He was merely stating something that I think resonates with many Christians, that it seems strange to us to honor the dead sometimes, especially given that our faith is founded on resurrection. It's founded on life and um, a Messiah and spending eternity with him. So, as a result, churches usually handle this particular holiday or other national holidays in one of two ways. Either A, they embrace these things fully, and when they do, sometimes they risk, I think, making uh, God and country like the same thing or equal. Uh, Making national holidays really the focus of our worship when they shouldn't be. Uh, That's one of the risks. And so, lots of churches will do that, and, and I mean, that's their decision, but... They will elevate this thing above maybe what God commanded us to do. Then there's the the B option, which there are churches that just ignore these things completely. And I think that they miss out on opportunities that we have to learn, you know, like what God might teach us, especially through our history. A lot of what we study and talk about 
when we look at Scripture is history and the lessons that we can learn from that. And so I think that I'm going to try today to maybe pave a middle road if I can uh, in this regard. And so John had this up earlier, but I think this is really the key of what we're talking about. It's John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So Memorial Day, when we honor men and women who sacrificed everything, um, even making the ultimate sacrifice of their lives for this country and really for the freedoms that we enjoy, like the one that we're enjoying now, freedom of worship, right? There's another verse, and it's in Romans, and this is really just the back half of it. It's Romans 13, 7. Uh, and it's talking about a lot of different things, and I know that it's in the context of taxes and some things like that, but I think this is still true. Respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We respect these men and women, I believe, uh, not only by remembering what they gave up for our freedom, but when we meet together and we worship God, we honor them by not taking their sacrifices for granted. Think about that for a second. Uh, All the freedoms, and a lot of times we like to talk about the freedoms uh, that we see other people exercising that maybe we don't like. Like, I don't like the way that that guy exercises his freedom of speech or whatever it is, right? But... How often do we stop and think to ourselves how fortunate we are that we have the freedom to worship the way that we do? And so uh, the Jewish people actually have lots of days of remembrance. And as a matter of fact, they have uh, many of them on their calendars and others that are actually woven into their worship. I mean, really, Passover, that's what it is. It's this season of remembrance. Uh, They have a day that remembers the Holocaust. They have all kinds of days that remember those who have passed on. But here's the the deal, and this is where I want to go with what we're going to talk about. They have these dates that are woven within their worship and on their calendars as reminders. And you might say, well, reminders of what? What are we remembering? It's this. A reminder of the Lord's faithfulness and a reminder that God has preserved his people for his glory. So in Judaism, obviously, they are God's people. So that makes sense. But they take these things and they always make them point back to God. And I think that that's important. I think we should do the same thing. It should be true for us. So these holidays like Memorial Day, when we remember those who've given up everything for the freedom of our country, we should also remember the one, right? Jesus, the Messiah, who gave up everything for our eternal freedom. I I think there's a, a great correlation there. And so we've been taking kind of this impromptu tour through Acts, and I'd like to say that it was part of this plan, but it, it, it just kind of has happened. And I think it's been interesting what God has been teaching us as we kind of walk through this book a little bit. And we're just skipping all over the place. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Uh, the official title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. So like if this were a cartoon on Saturday morning, it would be The Adventures of the Disciples of Jesus or Jesus and His Amazing Friends, Right? That's what it would be. You've got all these different men and women that pop up in this book, and we get to hear about these amazing things that God is doing through them. And so today's story, today's story, bondage and freedom. Okay? The cartoon, you guys rolling with me? Okay, good. Today's story, today on Jesus and his amazing friends, bondage and freedom. Okay. (laughs) So to set the story up, we are going to be in the city of Philippi. Now, the cool thing about the way that this all plays out is that, first off, you have these two guys, Paul and Silas, that are completely men out of time in the sense that they're in the city. And even though Paul was like a Roman citizen and he knew the culture, he knew how it all worked, 
you're going to see some interesting things in this story. Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony, and it was as Roman as Roman could get. You couldn't walk down the street without seeing a shrine or an altar or some type of thing dedicated to one of many Roman or Greek gods. They were everywhere. I mean, everywhere. even people had their own personal ones in their homes. So you're talking about a city that was deeply steeped in this tradition of worshiping many gods, not really knowing who the one true God was, not really knowing um, if this sacrifice that they made on Thursday was going to cause something good or something bad to happen. And so I want you to listen carefully to this story because we're going to read it in two big blocks. It actually kind of tells itself. I want you to pay attention to the characters, and I want you to see what details you notice as this thing kind of unfolds. And then I'm going to ask you maybe a couple questions afterward about it. So we're going to kick it off after a deep breath. (sighs) Okay. In Acts 16... Starting with verse 16. Once when we were going to the place where the minion gathered, which was a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had in her a snake spirit that enabled her to predict the future. She earned a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. This girl followed behind Paul and the rest of us and kept screaming, These men are the servants of God! Heil Jan! They're telling you how to be saved! These men are the servants of God! Heil Jan! They're telling you how to be saved! Over and over and over again, right? She kept this up day after day after day until Paul, greatly disturbed, turned and said to the Spirit, In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, I'm not pointing at you guys, just so you know. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, order you to come out of her. And the Spirit did come out of her at that very moment. It goes on to say, But when her owners, remember she was a slave girl, When her owners saw that what had come out of her was any further prospect of profit for them. I love how it says that. It's awesome. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the market square to face the authorities. Bringing them to the judges, they said, These men are causing a lot of trouble in our city since they're Jews. Then they go on to say, What they are doing is advocating customs that are against the law for us to accept or practice since we are Romans. The mob joined in the attack against them, and the judges tore off their clothes, right? They ordered that they would be flogged. After giving them a severe beating, they threw them in prison, charging the jailer to guard them securely. Upon receiving such an order, he threw them into the inner cell and clamped their feet securely between heavy blocks of wood. Sounds like a fun afternoon, doesn't it? So Paul and Silas were minding their own business. They were going to pray with a group of people. And that word that you saw there, a minion, is simply a quorum of ten men that would have been required for a regular synagogue service. So they were going to a prayer service, basically. And all of a sudden, this freaky girl with this snake spirit starts following them around and taunting them. And it literally means here this spirit that she is possessed by that could predict the future somehow is literally, if you look at the original language, it's a python spirit. And there's something important there. The python symbolized this oracle that was at Delphi in central Greece. And there was a priestess there that she would get into this trance-like state. She represented the god Apollo, and she would try to predict the future, right? So both Greeks and Romans put a lot of... Of stock into divination and this kind of thing. 
This was a big deal to them. She probably had a following within that town. People probably knew who she was. And let me just say here, a little sidebar. For us as believers, uh, psychics, mediums, horoscopes, uh, 1-800-PSYCHIC-NETWORK or whatever it used to be, this is stuff that God says no to for us, okay? It's not stuff we play around with. It's not stuff we dabble in. Uh, it's a, on a long list of stuff that God doesn't want us to have any part of, okay? So we're not supposed to associate with these things. So somehow the Spirit gave this girl the ability to foretell some things. Now, we don't know if she was good at it, but obviously she was good enough at it that she had this following. But what we do know is she carried this credibility with her, with these people. Now, I want you to notice something in the statement that she makes. The statement is this. These men are the servants of God, Hail Yon, which means God most high. They're telling you how to be saved. That's not a false statement. That's truth. She's speaking truth. Paul and Silas were there to share the good news with the people. Salvation and discipleship was their purpose. And what that tells me is that even the enemy can profess truth when it suits his purposes. Usually it's half-truths. But there's some other stuff in the underlying um, what was going on in the culture that we need to unpack here for just a second. So to Jewish ears, like uh, if, they were, if she was proclaiming this over in Jerusalem or someplace else, Jewish ears would have heard her statement as the one and only God offers the way of salvation, which is exactly the way we probably hear it. But Philippi, again, was a Roman colony, so her statement likely caused all sorts of confusion. And what is the enemy all about? Confusion, right? Uh, Number one, which most high God? I mean, they were polytheistic pagans. They had many highest gods, uh, Zeus, Isis, Lydia, Baal. A pagan hearer would understand this term to refer to whatever deity that they personally felt was the highest one. So whoever answered the email when they sacrificed the chicken or whatever, that's the one that they would have been thinking of when she makes the statement. And then she goes on to say that they want to show you the way of salvation, right? For the pagan, the way of salvation was a release from the powers governing the fate of humankind in the material world. So that could even mean death. Kind of interesting. So you can understand how confusing this would have been. And Paul and Silas would have had to start every discussion explaining what all of that stuff meant. They'd have to backtrack and explain these things over and over and over again as this girl just continually caused this disruption. Obviously, news of God's power was traveling. People were hearing about it. So when they showed up, everybody knew who these guys were. They'd heard about the stories, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. They knew. And so there's a part of this that maybe she was trying to attach herself to that notoriety. Or maybe her owners desired for her to attach herself to that notoriety. At the very least, it was a distraction. So as this girl with this evil spirit within her is causing confusion and distractions everywhere they go, it's an attempt to thwart the work that God was trying to do through them. And so, as we often see in Scripture, Paul gets annoyed by it. (laughs) Paul, if you just read through like some of his letters and stuff, it's really easy to kind of infer tone, just like, you know. I mean, and I think it's funny that it actually tells us that he got annoyed, which is great. So he turns and he speaks to this spirit. Of course, he's mad, right? She's chasing him around. I won't do it again. 
He turns and says, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, order you to come out of her. Note, the spirit comes out. He doesn't speak to the girl. He speaks to the spirit and commands it to come out. And it's a miracle, right? This is awesome. She's totally delivered from this thing that was controlling her life. This thing that had her in bondage. Everybody celebrates. Woo! No, that's not what happened at all. Should be a good thing. Well, the men who owned her didn't think it was such a good thing because all of a sudden, their very lucrative pyramid scheme magic eight ball girl had suddenly been robbed of all of the power that she had that was making them a lot of money. They were not happy, needless to say. And when you start jacking with people's money, there's really two things. There's two things. Number one, tell people how to spend their money. And number two, tell people how to raise their kids. If you want to make somebody angry, try either one of those. So, in this case, it was the money. So, they seize Paul and they seize Silas, which is hard to say. And they drag them into the market square before the judges, the magistrates of Philippi. These men are causing a lot of trouble in our city since they're Jews. Well, they start right off. With anti-Semitism, with racism. That's the first thing, the first card they lay out on the table. Uh, the whole reason was that there was a lot of, uh, I guess, pent-up frustration and, and really outward frustration between the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world, especially uh, in kind of the aftermath of Jesus being there and a lot of the things that had happened. And so these guys, they tap into that first and foremost because Philippi was a proud Roman colony. Now, here's the deal. The whole purpose, the whole issue with these guys is a financial loss. But they know that that whole thing is not going to go anywhere with the officials. That particular charge is not going to carry a lot of weight. So they start with getting their attention with anti-Semitism, and then they kick it up a notch by saying, they were trying to get us to believe and do stuff that's not really Roman stuff to do. And this is what immediately incites violence, and the mob attacks them, and in the frenzy, the judges rip off their clothes and they are flogged, or your translation might say, beaten with rods. If you've ever wandered back into kids' church when they have the pool noodles out, you know exactly what this looks like. I have been the victim of those beatings, I will state. Quack, 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 right? No trial, no opportunity to speak up to defend themselves. They don't even have enough time to announce that they are Roman citizens, which would have changed the situation. It would have changed things. And actually, that's covered at the end of the story. You'll have to read that on your own. The mob mentality sweeps over everyone, the judges and the magistrates included. And they're all a part of this violent frenzy. And if you were here last week, remember, I was talking about uh, Paul and his whole like before and after story. And I was talking about this disciple, Ananias, remember, and God had told him, hey, man, you need to go to Paul and you need to talk to him. And Ananias, of course, is questioning it because he'd heard all of these things about Paul Persecuting Christians. Are you sure you want me to do that, God? Right? But God reveals to Ananias that, you know, I've got this plan for Paul, and he's not only going to take this message, like, to the cities, but he's going to take this message to the corners of the world. He has a plan, God says. I have this plan to reach the Jewish people from the very highest to the very lowest through him and the Gentiles as well. 
But the last thing that God said to Ananias, and it's in Acts 9.17, he says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you know anything about Paul, you know that one of the themes of his ministry is physical punishment. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about being beaten with rods three times, which I assume this was one of those. Um, and then enduring the Jewish method of 40 lashes minus one five times. And the reason that they only gave you 39 lashes was because they believed that 40 would kill you. So they just wanted you on the verge of death. That happened five times to Paul. He has suffered a lot. These actions are clearly illegal in this sense. Paul and Silas were not given any formal trial or a chance to speak in their defense. Uh, One other thing in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul speaks of this moment, actually, when he talks about being treated outrageously in Philippi. (laughs) This is outrageous treatment, according to Paul. So, afterward, after all this, after they get tickled with the, the rods, they take them, they throw them into prison, And they're not just satisfied to put him in, like, the general population of prison. They put them in the most secure part of prison, and they lock their feet into wooden stocks. These guys are not going anywhere. And so in Paul and Silas's mind, I'm sure there's a part of them that they're saying to themselves, this might be it. You know, this might be the end. They were pretty angry out there. And I doubt they're going to get to allow us to say anything, so this could be it for us. Now remember, I've got some questions, so pay attention, because here we go. Second half of the story. So around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, while the other prisoners listened attentively. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer awoke, and when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, for he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Calling for lights, the jailer ran in, began to tremble, and fell down in front of Paul and Silas. Then leading them outside, he said, men, what must I do to be saved? They said, trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. Then, even at that late hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed off their wounds. And without delay, he and all of his people were immersed, which means baptized. After that, he brought them up to his house and set food in in front of them. And he and his entire household celebrated their having come to trust in God. So here's the question. In this passage, chunk of scripture that we've been reading, who's free? Remember, we're talking about bondage and freedom today. Who is free in this passage? Uh, There's a pastor, Randy Quinn, that kind of unpacks this whole passage by examining each of these characters. And so that's what I want to do today, too. So let's start with the slave girl. I mean, as Americans, we cherish the right freedom of speech, right? It's like a big part of who we are. And it seems that the slave girl is exercising her freedom of speech as she tries to follow them around shouting, right? It appears that she's speaking the truth freely. However, she really has no choice. She is in bondage to this demon or the spirit that forces her to speak. And she's also in bondage to the men who own her. So the second question, what about her owners? Are they free? 
I mean, they seem to be until their source of income is taken away from them. No matter that this girl had been delivered from this spirit that obviously was torturing her in some way. To them, she was merely property to be used. They were in bondage to money and to their own desires. What about the city leaders, the magistrates and the judges that they brought Paul and Silas to? What about them? Are they free? They certainly seem to be free. I mean, they're in a position of power, right? They can make choices. They can make decisions. They can guide the city in certain ways, this way or that way. Uh, They have all of the control over the affairs of the city. A judge was supposed to make decisions based on fairness and honesty and decency and things like that. But when a prominent local businessman comes in with an issue, suddenly the scales shift, right? With accusations of being ripped off, using racism, unfounded charges that their way of life as Romans is being threatened. And the thing is, is we never hear those leaders question their word. When the crowd is swayed, the people join in, uh, everybody swept along in this thing. So it turns out the magistrates weren't really free to make their own choices. Uh, They are in bondage to perhaps wealthy locals or to public opinion. We see that today even sometimes. What about the prison guard? Just to give you a little bit of, you know, this is subjective, but most people believe that he was probably a retired Roman soldier, somebody that had been seasoned in battle, somebody that knew how things worked, somebody that had a lot of experience and was now maybe not as capable on the battlefield, maybe he'd gotten older. So he settled into a home in a community where he gets this position to keep guard over a jail, which would have been a pretty sweet position back then. It's enviable because he is free of the day-to-day demands of maybe the regimented military discipline, free from the risk and responsibility of leading troops into battles in foreign lands, free to have a family, right, and actually see his family on a regular basis because they live in this town with him. But when it appears that the prisoners have escaped, we see that he is in bondage to Rome and his emperor. At the very least, he's in bondage to honor because it would have been a very dishonorable thing for those men to escape on his watch. Allowing convicts to escape was punishable by death. So rather than facing that punishment for freeing the convicts, he prepares to take his own life, maybe to even make it look like he was killed in the escape. So in our story, all these people that we've talked about that seem like they would be the ones that are free are not free. And in our story, even though they are the only ones who are physically bound and imprisoned, Paul and Silas are the ones that are truly free. Notice they begin to pray and worship. Their circumstances don't change or dictate the state of their hearts. And I think that's a huge lesson for us. Uh, When we come in here to worship... You know, and John kind of talked about it, I think, even when he prayed. But so many times there are things that are weighing down on us, on our hearts. Like, you know, and I get it. I mean, all of us, every one of us experiences that, where the problems of the past week, uh, maybe even the problems of the drive to church, right, are weighing down on us. And we come in to this room, 
And sometimes it takes us a song or two or maybe never to finally get to this place where we can surrender our hearts to God. But in this case, Paul and Silas, the the circumstances do not dictate or change their worship. The circumstances don't change or dictate the state of their hearts in worship. They just start praying aloud and start worshiping in prison. And it's very clear there in the scripture that everyone surrounding them listened intently. They didn't preach a sermon. They didn't start a Bible study, although either of those things are fine. They'd be great. But it's the sincerity of their prayers and worship to God that were a catalyst for this miracle that happens. So God shakes the foundations of this prison, freeing everybody from their bonds. But even better than that, God shakes the foundations of the life of this jailer. And then shakes the foundations of the lives of his family and all of the people that lived in his household. And as a prominent, possibly wealthy Roman, there would have been a lot of servants and people living in his household. His entire household heard and believed the message of Jesus and became truly free because of this one moment. Paul and Silas and now the jailer and his family found truth and it set them free. So at the end of the story, there's actually more people that are free than when the story started. The truth sets them free. And Jesus actually promises this in John 8. So Yeshua said to the Judeans who had trusted him, If you obey what I say, then you are truly my Talmudim. And that simply means disciples or students. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Memorial Day, guys, celebrates those who sacrificed their lives for our freedom. But the truth of the matter is, the freedom that we've been given through the sacrifice of others on the battlefield could be taken away from us in an instant. Whether through uh, war or political change or some type of catastrophic event, it's very possible it could happen. In reality, the freedoms that our country affords, we should cherish because... They're always under threat. But that's why our trust, folks, do not lie in the things of this world. Because that same statement is true no matter where where you live on this planet. The only freedom that we can trust is the freedom that we have in Jesus. He gave his life not only for our past, but our present and our future freedom. And it's a, a freedom that no one can take from us. A freedom like that of Paul and Silas that can never be taken away regardless of our circumstances. Whether we're in prison or not. Later in John 8, Jesus goes on to explain, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that we are slaves to sin. That we are bound by it, that we are bound to it, that it has a hold on us, and that we are in its clutches. And that our default position, folks, is living a life in bondage. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. But then he wraps it up with this statement in verse 38, John chapter 8. And remember, he's talking to the Jewish people that had chosen to follow him. He's like, listen, I say what my father has shown me. You do what your father has told you. What does he mean by that? It's like, listen, I gave everything. I'm about to give everything 
to break these chains of bondage? Jesus gave everything for us to break the chains of bondage to our sin. But here's the thing. We don't have to wait for the freedom that that brings. We can have that right now. And again, it's past, present, and future. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Unlike the freedom that we have in this country, this freedom that Jesus brings us is not something that we have to fight for. We don't have to fight to win it. In fact, the freedom that Jesus brings only comes through surrender. And what Jesus offers us is more than a moment of peace. It's a way of living and following him in freedom. And that's really what he's saying there in that verse. So here's the question that I want you to consider for just a second. And I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. Are you truly free today? Are you truly free? Are you truly free or are there things in your life that have a stronger hold over you than Jesus? That could be addictions, relationships, your past, maybe public opinion or what others think of you. Maybe it could even be your pride. You might say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I think sometimes we know these things, we hear these things, we believe these things, but the step we lack in that is surrendering. As proud Americans, I think it's something that might be hard for us at times. So really, the invitation today is simple. If you want that freedom, it's time to lay some things down and pick up that freedom that Jesus offers you today. Father, we love to be in your presence. But how easy it is for us to forget that and run to so many other things in our lives, God. When we have that moment of time and space at our disposal. Father, I pray that you would be ever present in our lives and that we would Notice when you're speaking that we would hear your voice, that we would carve out those moments, God, more and more of those moments where it's not just a prayer time or a Bible study or a weekend service or 
something like that, God, but that day after day after day. That the amount of space that you feel in our mind, that you fill in our minds and in our hearts, God, that that would grow. I love you, God, and I thank you for your people. I thank you for the examples of those that have gone on before us and have given up everything so that you could be glorified. We are especially thankful for your son. And everything he gave for us. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name. Amen.